EPC Power manufactures self-developed energy storage smart inverters made in their American factories with gigawatt-level capacity. EPC Power is headquartered in San Diego County, California, and recently opened an engineering and sales location in Helsinki, Finland, to support the growing global demand. Visit epcpower.com energygang to learn more about the utility scale and CLI product lines, and schedule a call to learn how they can help you power your energy storage projects. EPC Power. Excellence in power conversion. Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. In this episode, President Biden is planning a new strategy for making progress with his climate agenda in Congress. What does it mean for renewable energy in the US? Over the past couple of months, states including New York, New Jersey and Oregon have passed new rules pushing manufacturers to sell electric trucks. Are the states now carrying the baton for energy policy? Now the federal government appears to be flagging. And recycling energy waste. Renewables and energy storage face two increasingly pressing problems. Growing volumes of old batteries, turbine blades and solar panels being sent to landfill and shortages and steep price rises for some critical materials. So, is recycling the answer? To discuss these subjects, I'm very pleased to welcome back Melissa Lott, Director of Research at the Centre on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. Hello, Melissa. Welcome back. How have you been? I'm good, Ed. Um, I think I can still say Happy New Year, because this is the first time we've done this together <laughs> since 2022. So I think it's legitimate, even though it's several weeks later. Um, but no, I've been good. It was good holidays. Yeah, good, good. Yeah, it's been a while since we've seen you, isn't it? Um, how was it then? How was your break? It was busy and not busy, which is great. I intentionally, you know, we at the at the center, we made a conscious choice to be offline during the holidays. It's been a really busy two years and you got to recharge those batteries. And so I spent a lot of time building castles out of Legos, um, <laughs> uh, eating a lot a of great baked way goods. To spend a holiday, yeah. It's the best. It's the best. Um, it's one of my favorite games that I get to play more. I've got an excuse as a, as a parent of a young child. <laughs> so it's really fantastic. So we built lots of um, lots of castles, one of which is hydropowered, I will say, because we had a lot of blue, a lot of <laughs> blue cool. blocks. Um, and then I also, I was just thinking about it, talking about it with my partner earlier. We uh, spec'd out what it would take to actually electrify our travel rigs or our trailer and our haul, a tow vehicle and all of that. It was really fun. So yeah, I had a good holiday. How about you? Yeah, very nice time. Uh, we were talking about this on the last show. I managed to get to travel back to England to see family and friends there, which was very nice. Did make me think, though, about what's happening in terms of air travel coming back, the way oil demand is resurgent so strongly at the moment. You remember people talked in 2019 about 2019 maybe being the peak of oil demand, oil demand never coming back. That's clearly not the case. Oil demand is going to hit new record highs probably sometime this year. A lot of people like me are wanting to fly. People are driving again. Economic activity is coming back again. And it did make me think again, just in terms of underlying the challenge of decarbonization, the challenge of the energy transition, which is that people still want a lot of the services that fossil fuel provides. So, which is kind of, which no, seems sure. like a, yeah, which seems like a downbeat thing to be thinking about um, as I was enjoying the pleasures and uh, privileges of, of being able to see family and, and so on, and, which was really nice. But as I say, it's a reminder of, of the downside of all of that as well. well. I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this have been following for the US that Rhodium Group report that came out. And it was talking about how jet fuel is still down, but overall, was it diesel demand rose by something like 9% from 2020 levels in 2021, which put it slightly above pre-pandemic demand. And 
guess we're buying a lot of stuff because that's road freight numbers uh, really driving that. But yeah, the infrastructure hasn't changed. There we are. And also for the first time on the Energy Gang, I'm very pleased to welcome Robbie Orvis, who's the Senior Director of Energy Policy Design at the think tank Energy Innovation. Hi, Robbie. Thanks a lot for joining us. Hey, Ed. Great to be here. Looking forward to the conversation today. Yeah. So for the benefit of our listeners, perhaps who uh, who may not know you, can you talk a little bit about yourself? Tell, tell us a bit about your background. How did you get into the energy business and what are you doing now at uh, Energy Innovation? Of course. So at Energy Innovation, as you mentioned, I'm a senior director and I work with my team there analyzing the potential impacts of climate energy policies in the U.S. at the state level. Um, we do a lot of international work as well. I ended up in this space in a interesting little arc where I uh, started off in environmental law. I worked for a small firm in D.C. And, and was really interested in working on energy and climate change and ultimately came to the conclusion that the law was important and a lot of great things happen from environmental law firms. I wanted to go in a somewhat different direction. So I went and got my master's degree at Yale. And uh, I have been in energy innovation since then. I've mostly focused on uh, energy policy modeling and analysis. Um, we have the privilege of working directly with a lot of policymakers and regulators. So definitely get to learn a lot. And what's the mission of energy innovation? What are you really trying to achieve? So we are focused on reducing carbon as quickly as possible. Um, and so we're really focused on working directly with policymakers and regulators around the world to identify which policies can move the needle on climate as quickly as possible and how to design those policies well. So you may have seen, for example, a book we wrote a few years back called Designing Climate Solutions, which is oriented specifically on you know the top sectors and the top countries of the world and how to cut emissions using policies that have been used all over the world. Um, so it's really our, our focus is, is on those top emitting sectors. Great to have you on the show. Thanks very much indeed for coming along. So to take advantage of you being here, Robbie, we're going to focus quite a bit on climate and energy policy. The first thing I wanted to talk about is the Biden administration's climate agenda. As listeners will very likely remember, last year there were two big pieces of legislation going through Congress with significant implications for energy in the US. There was the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which included money and regulatory support for investment in the grid and in zero carbon technologies for the longer term, including advanced nuclear, hydrogen and carbon capture. That bill had bipartisan support and it passed. And then there was another bill, which was the Build Back Better Act, which included extensions and expansions of the tax credits for renewable energy, for storage and electric vehicles, as well as more generous support for hydrogen and carbon capture. It also included a whole load of other things, including there were measures on childcare, child tax credits, corporate taxes, drug prices. It was really the big sort of omnibus bill for uh, President Biden's domestic agenda. That bill did not have bipartisan support, didn't really even have support from all Democrats. In particular, it didn't have support from all the Democrats in the Senate. And that really matters because Parties are currently split 50-50 in the Senate. And in December, Joe Manchin, the Democratic senator from West Virginia, finally said he wouldn't vote for it. So that's a very big setback for President Biden, who'd put, as I say, a large part of his domestic agenda into that one bill. So as we come into 2022, the big question is how much of that agenda can be saved? And last week, President Biden gave an indication of how he wanted to answer that question. He wants to break the package up and try to pass it in pieces. Now, the energy section of the bill, which is valued at about $555 billion over 10 years, is said to be one of the parts of that whole sprawling package that actually stands the best chance of passing. Senator Manchin, who, as I say, was the key figure in blocking the complete bill, has suggested that he supports most of that 
energy agenda. So maybe things are looking up a bit for hopes in the renewable energy industry that they will get that policy support. It was certainly, I think, fair to say, pretty downbeat mood at the end of the year when that bill got killed. But maybe now hopes are rising a bit again. So that's the kind of landscape, I think, of where we are right now. Robbie, what's your sense of it? As I say, hopes are rising. What do you think are the chances that these clean energy measures, uh, expansions and extensions of tax credits, various other things, will get passed sometime this year? Yeah, well, that's exactly right, Ed. Um, it's been quite the roller coaster ride uh, the past few months as the Build Back Better Act made its way through the House um, with input from the Senate, Senator Manchin and others publicly involved in negotiations and involved in crafting what um, came out of the House. Um, and then, of course, all the optimism uh, in the fall and winter in the Senate with the public decision by Senator Manchin over the holidays to, to come out and and state he was opposed. So then with the news just last week, um, after voting rights had been voted on in the Senate with President Biden now seeing to imply that some version of Build Back Better, and in particular, those climate provisions of almost half a trillion dollars being the thing that's most agreed upon. So I think um, a lot of us are optimistic that that's the component that seems to have the most agreement and that there's a decent chance that that in some variation of that, hopefully mostly intact with where it is now, uh, is likely on the docket for the near future. Is Joe Manchin really then the key figure here then? Is he the the kingmaker who can, with a thumbs up or a thumbs down, make or break this climate and energy agenda? Well, it would appear that way. Um, he's He's been the swing vote uh, or one of the two swing votes on the Senate legislation so far, with Senator Sinema being the other. But again, Senator Manchin has been involved throughout the negotiation process, and we've seen changes to the bill over the past several months that reflect his demands, um, including, for example, folks may remember there was the Clean Electricity Performance Program, which was kind of a incentive-based clean electricity standard that was scrapped after he publicly came out and said he couldn't support it. And there's been some others. He's been involved in negotiations regarding the methane fee that's been widely reported. So he is going to be a very important person to to have final say on the bill. But given that he's been involved throughout and, and there's been changes to Build Back Better based on his input so far, it seems that um, there's there's good progress on that front. Just on that point, you raised the point about the methane fee. This is a, a charge on methane emissions leakage from oil and gas operations. What's Senator Manchin's position on that? Was he pro or anti? Well, I think he had requested changes to it. So it's it's evolved. Um, one of the changes that we saw between the originally proposed version and a later version was a, a phasing in of the fee over time, and then um, funding to help methane extractors and suppliers comply with the standards and with meeting the necessary technological upgrades to to reduce emissions. So it's it's still largely intact, but it's designed somewhat differently to give a bit more flexibility. Got it. And as I've been saying, tax credits for wind, solar, storage, electric vehicles, a few other things, hydrogen, carbon capture, all of those would be made more generous in various ways if the legislation, as we saw it last year, had passed or if something like that then passes this year. How significant is that really for clean energy in the US? When, As you say, you've been sort of modeling some of the impacts of this and, and looking at what it might mean. How big a difference in your view does it make to the US clean energy industry if something like this passes? Well, the provisions in Build Back Better would be transformational. 
uh, for the U.S. economy and for helping to meet our emissions reductions. There's just so much good stuff in there for the clean energy industry, ranging from incentives um, for making our buildings more efficient and installing heat pumps and electric equipment to, as you mentioned, clean energy tax credits uh, are getting a major overhaul and a lot more flexibility and a longer timeline. There's tax credits for electric vehicles. There's industrial tax credits and incentives also to help decarbonize U.S. industry and to help onshore some of the critical industries that are going to be needed to to build all that clean energy and all those clean electric vehicles. So if you were to take a guess, how do you think it's going to play out then? I mean, is this going to pass at some point or is it at least going to start to make progress even some point soon? And then ultimately, where do we end up? Does it get to pass this year? Well, gosh, I wish I uh, I were able to have my magic eight ball <laughs> to answer that question. Um, you know, trying to read the tea leaves a bit with President Biden's remarks, it sure seems a lot more optimistic this week than a few weeks ago. I can tell you the the mood and in late December uh, in my household was pretty pretty low after we saw Senator Manchin come out and basically say he he couldn't support it. But I I think that given also that Senator Manchin has said publicly that. He's mostly on board with the environmental provisions. I, I feel a good degree of confidence we're going to see something this year. Um, you know, it will take time to even if once we get something passed to set up all the mechanisms to disperse the funding and administer tax credits and start those programs. But I'm I'm much more optimistic than I was a month ago. So, Melissa, what's your view on all this? If you take a step back then from this specific package and look more broadly at President Biden's climate agenda. How critical is this specific package of legislation, do you think, to achieving those goals that the president has set? And if the success or failure of this package, does this really determine the success or failure of the whole of President Biden's climate strategy? You know, if this doesn't work, what has he got left? I mean, I think on an international scale, it's fair to say that whether or not key measures for clean energy, make it through, that's going to be a focus, if not the focus of discussions at COP27 in Egypt. So great, there's ambition. You've got these non-binding goals, targets. Now what are you doing to deliver it? And this isn't just for the US and the Biden administration. This is for governments around the world. So for the Biden administration, no doubt, there's a lot of pressure to pass something significant. And the Build Back Better Act or some subset of it, whether it's the 550-ish billion in, in clean energy and climate pieces or other, something bigger. I mean, that's that's the thing that's up for discussion right now. That's the biggest potential move that at least those of us who aren't in the rooms every day are aware of. Um, so that's where I think they're placing a lot of bets. Executive orders only get you so far. And I think the world is aware of the fact that they are temporary and they can be undone with an election. So you know, what can we do that's going to be binding and lasting? Now, as y'all have already spoken about, you and Robbie have spoken about, you know, Manchin has signaled that he's willing to strike a deal. And there seems to be some kind of ability for Democrats to get these tax credits and rebates, which are the bulk of, you know, that section of the act of the proposed um, bill to get them across the line. Uh, time will tell <laughs> what the result will be and if it will actually happen in time for Egypt or is it going to keep getting punted what are midterms going to do to all of us? I mean, for those of us who've been through the DC cycles, I think we're kind of buckling up for the next little bit to see where we go. On an international level, though, I want to touch on that a little bit. So coming out of Glasgow, I'm sure that many of us remember those headlines that focus on things like policing mechanisms. So are the pledges you're making in line with what we need to do to actually 
avoid the worst impacts of climate change, to actually be at 1.5 degrees or at least well below two, these types of things. And then there were a lot of headlines that have come out since then that have focused on our countries that even have binding legislation, are they doing what they need to do to meet it? So I'm thinking about most recently, it was earlier this month, I think, where we saw Client Earth and Friends of the Earth file court papers in the UK, effectively suing the government over its net zero climate strategy. And the argument, as far as um, me, engineer, could tell, and policy person reading through it, was that, great, you've got the Climate Change Act. Now you need policies to actually make sure that you can meet the targets you set. And furthermore, when you look at Friends of the Earth files, you need to make sure that you're actually implementing these policies in a way that don't disproportionately impact subsets of the of your economy, so your population, so different groups that are already struggling to pay their bills, et cetera. So this seems to be a trend that we're seeing overall, a lot more actions in the courts. So climate activists suing governments and saying, and companies saying you need to take actions against climate change. So it'll be interesting to see how this develops as we run up to Egypt. And there's certainly a ton of pressure on Biden and his team. A lot of these concerns about our countries actually delivering on the commitments that they've made, it's an international phenomenon. We're seeing it in the UK, as you were saying, and and so on elsewhere. I wonder, though, does the US have some very specific problems to do with the Constitution, separation of powers, limits on presidential power? President Biden seems to have a lot less authority even than a French president or a British prime minister, you know, let alone a Chinese president in terms of being able to implement his climate and energy agenda. Is that something that other countries kind of think about and are conscious of? Do do, um, policymakers in other countries kind of make allowances for that? Or does it mean that they regard the US as an unreliable counterparty and they sort of know that, well, whatever President Biden says, you can't really take that seriously because what counts is what goes on in Congress and he doesn't have Congress united behind him. What does that mean for the place of the US in the world as, as we've been saying, the the world is trying to make this global effort on climate? It's interesting. I've been talking to a bunch of my colleagues in Asia and Europe just about, okay, we just came out of Glasgow, we took a breath, and now we're running up to to Egypt. Um, And I think if I had to summarize their comments recently, it's kind of a passive, just assuming the US is going to talk a lot at the end, not agree on much, but there's a difference between not agreeing on anything and not agreeing on much. So they're really interested in how far the country will go. And then several have actually commented to me recently that they're actually waiting to see what happens in states and cities because that's what they see as major drivers around the country. They're saying one interesting thing you have because you are such a big country are these 50 states and territories that have the ability to make their own laws and they don't have to wait for the federal government. And they're following all those maps showing what states are doing. Uh, Robbie, I mean, what do you think about this? I mean, again, to that question about suppose this legislative package fails, what's left of President Biden's climate policy then answer what he can do with executive actions regulation, but those are kind of unreliable tools. I mean, what's your sense of it? I mean, is there much he can achieve that way? Or is it really the case that if the legislative route is blocked off, then there's nothing very substantive left? Well, look, even if Build Back Better passes uh, in its current form, it's not going to be enough to get to the the target, which, you know, the U.S., the Biden administration announced the target of 50 to 52 percent below 2005 greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. So our modeling, at least some of the other modeling we've seen out there, doesn't get all the way there by 2030, even even with Build Back Better. So certainly 
additional action is going to be necessary. And we've seen the Biden administration already pursuing that avenue to some degree. We've seen new uh, vehicle standards for light duty vehicles, um, kind of redoing the Trump administration, the safe rule, the Biden administration redid it and, and really strengthened the efficiency standards for cars. We've seen new methane rules. We've seen standards for these really high global warming potential refrigerants. So we've seen some of it already. And I think just last week, there was an article about the slew of um, power plant regulations that EPA is is lining up to come after the power sector. So, you know, I think that either way, uh, executive action is going to be needed. There are certainly risks involved, you know, just like there's risk involved in pursuing legislation with with all the main pieces. And a lot of us, I know, are looking to see how the Supreme Court handles uh, this forthcoming case on, you know, whether or not EPA has the authority to, to regulate greenhouse gases. But I think, you know, looking at what's on the EPA docket, I think there's a lot that that executive action can achieve in terms of emissions reductions. Will it be enough? Depends exactly on how how many standards EPA can uh, get to, how stringent they are. Yeah, that is a fascinating court case, as you say, that one that's going to be coming up in front of the Supreme Court soon. I think they're going to have an oral hearing on February the 28th, and I'm sure we're going to want to debate it on a future episode of The Energy Gang. My understanding is it's not so much about the question of kind of in principle, can the EPA regulate greenhouse gas emissions? It's more the question of how do you design a policy to do that? And in particular, this question, I think, of whether or not you are allowed to go beyond the fence line. You know, this was the Obama administration strategy, the Clean Power Plan, which tried to regulate power emissions kind of on a statewide basis rather than at individual power plants. Trump administration said, no, no, you can't do that. You have you can only look at what happens at an individual plant. And there's been a variety of different rulings kind of basically seem to be creating quite a, a complex and messy situation kind of heading in different directions where it feels like sort of both the Trump administration's approach and the Obama administration's approach have both been blocked by the courts and is going to need some kind of resolution. But yeah, that is certainly going to be, I think, a very interesting case to follow. Melissa, what do you think about that? I mean, in terms of the value of executive action and regulation, and, you know, as we've just been saying, then when you put things in front of the courts, the court becomes extremely powerful. I mean, I think across the board, so we've got our government structure, which was, I mean, I'm having flashbacks to Schoolhouse Rock videos that I've watched growing up when we were <laughs> learning about things, how a bill becomes law and separation of powers and why we have all these different branches of government, why it was all structured that way. Stepping back for a minute, one thing I will say about the Biden administration is from day one, we have seen this all of government, all hands on deck, pursue all options approach to this. So, okay, we've got Build Back Better. We've got the work between Department of Energy and FERC around long distance transmission. We've got nothing. We've got, we could spend an entire show literally just listing boom, 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 like um, the Prime Minister of New Zealand did about the things they accomplished, you know, in the first you know year or so that she was in office. Like, what did they accomplish? We could spend this entire show just going through the list of things that they're pursuing. And you add that on top of what's going on in states and what private companies are doing, and there really is this inescapable pressure towards movement. Now, to Robbie's point, is it going to be fast enough to reach fifty to fifty-two percent um, by twenty thirty? Much, you know, and then on the power side of things, the twenty thirty-five targets out there. Uh, I'll just say I'm confident that we'll be closer than we would have been without all of this pressure. We will be closer. Mm-hmm. 
EPC Power manufactures self-developed energy storage smart inverters made in their American factories with gigawatt-level capacity. These inverters have industry-leading response time, advanced control features, and grid-forming capabilities. EPC is headquartered in San Diego County, California. To support growing global demand, they recently opened an engineering and sales branch in Helsinki, Finland, and are launching an East Coast factory this year. EPC Power is expanding its presence as the largest US grid-scale inverter manufacturer, delivering over a gigawatt of energy storage inverters to date, and over two gigawatts by the end of this year. Visit www.epcpower.com energygang to learn more about their utility scale and CNI product lines and schedule a call to learn how they can help you power your energy storage projects. EPC Power. Excellence in power conversion. Melissa, you mentioned this issue about the states and saying there's great international interest in what US states are doing partly because of exactly this point, that it's hard to make progress at a federal level for various different reasons, which we've just been discussing. There is a lot that states can do, and there is a lot that states have been doing. There was an interesting trend I've just been noticing just in the past few weeks, which was we've had quite a few states pushing ahead with regulations for zero emissions, medium and heavy trucks. Now, Cutting emissions from medium and heavy trucks is notoriously one of the more difficult challenges in decarbonisation because of power to weight issues with batteries and things. It's got to carry a heavy load around that's hard to do at the moment with an EV. But states are trying to do it. We've had California introducing regulations to encourage the sales of zero emissions, medium and heavy trucks. Towards the end of last year, then, what happened was you had a number of other states adopting those same rules. Uh, Oregon, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts did that. Then we've had quite a few others are looking at these rules. I think there's something like 15 states in total signed on to a sort of understanding in general terms about following what California was doing. We're going to have decisions coming up this year, probably in Colorado, Maine, Vermont, um, various other places. So this does seem like uh, these are pretty ambitious measures, given I, I saw someone from Ford talking about electric trucks the other day. So you know, Ford is very much committed to its uh, electrification standard, pushing ahead to be, I think they want to be all EVs by 2040. They have their light truck, the F-150 Lightning electric vehicle, which apparently is colossally successful, and they've got you know uh, lots of pre-orders for it, and they're stepping up planned production and all the rest of it because it's doing so well. Even they were saying, well, hang on a minute, on these medium and heavy trucks, we're not there yet. We don't have immediate plans to launch them. And yet we have these states kind of pushing ahead and saying, well, we want these trucks on the roads. And I think it's from 2025 is when these regulations would first kick in. I think it's something like 7% of medium trucks sold and 11% of uh, medium heavy and heavy trucks sold should be electric. And then that ramps up to kind of 50, 60, 75% into the 2030s. So really a pretty steep escalator there would make a very big difference to an important chunk of the US vehicle market. And as we were saying, Melissa, well, you know, in terms of when you think about oil demand and what's been particularly strong in oil demand recently, people buying a load of stuff, all those Amazon vans driving around all over the place, FedEx and UPS being so busy, that's been a key driver of oil demand. So it's if the states manage to achieve this, it's a very significant difference to US energy. 
but then also raises, I think, a lot of questions. I mean, R- Robbie, what do you think about what the states are doing? I mean, does this make sense to you? And is it something, do you think, that, that will end up having a very big impact? Yeah, I think the, uh, you know, the advanced clean trucks rule, which California first uh, promulgated, and then we're now seeing all these other states, which under this unique provision, the Clean Air Act, other states can adopt California standards. Um, so a lot of states have done that already for cars, and now we're seeing it with the advanced clean trucks rule. Um, and I think it's really innovative the way it's designed in that it's really oriented towards jumpstarting that market. You know, Ed, as you mentioned today, there's just not, especially for those really heavy 18-wheeler trucks, there's really not that many options uh, on the market. And so the goal of the program is to allow you know that market to develop by creating a strong incentive to do so. And so, you know, this will affect trucks, you know, all the way down to the F250 up to 18 wheelers um, and allow for trading. So if one segment of the market maybe that has um, smaller vehicles or doesn't need to go as far can can exceed its targets, they can actually trade some of those credits away to to some of the longer trucks as those technologies come along. And obviously, the more states that develop these standards or adopt the California standards, the the larger the market um, in the U.S. for those vehicles. Um, And so the hope is that this will catalyze investment by uh, manufacturers into the technologies and um, supply chain needed to produce those those vehicles. So it's a it's a really cool way in which, you know, states are are leading. Um, This is, you know, far in excess of um, federal rules or policy on on clean trucks and really has the potential to transform the the heavy duty market in the US. I would also just add that when it comes to heavy trucks, I think what we've seen in the past is not a good indicator of what we're going to see here moving into the future around heavy trucks. I was talking to Dr. Ben Sharp at the International Council on Clean Transportation uh, just before the new year. and we were talking through how in the past, when you'd see more efficient, more streamlined, less polluting heavy trucks come on board, they would start out with one company and do hundreds of thousands of miles on long haul, clear freeway driving. And then they moved to local and regional deliveries. And then they would eventually end up at a port. <laughs> you know, and it was kind of like a truck graveyard in a lot of ways. I think as we electrify heavy trucks, we're going to see the opposite happen. And actually, we're going to see electric trucks start at ports, then go to regional, and then go to national. And so by having actions at ports that can be driven by air pollution and public health concerns, decarbonization, et cetera, like going into LA and going to the port there and electrifying that area, and then that drives into the state, and then that drives into these long-haul cross-country routes, I think that's what we're going to see more than what we've seen in the past. So I wanted to talk about energy waste and recycling. Reason being, it seems like clean energy has got two linked problems at the moment. One is the cost of inputs, prices for many critical materials, particularly lithium, but also other critical materials, including uh, cobalt, polysilicon, several others. Those prices have been surging. I saw a story on Bloomberg just before we started that was calling the end of the era of ever cheaper green energy because of those um, rising costs for raw materials. And meanwhile, at the same time, people have been getting increasingly worried about waste from renewable energy and storage and EVs. IRENA, the International Renewable Energy Agency, recently said it expects 78 million tonnes of solar panels to become waste by 2050 worldwide. There is a boom underway for companies trying to address those two problems simultaneously through recycling, taking waste, processing it, and producing raw materials that can go back into the supply chain. I've just been reading about a new facility, for instance, in Georgia, that's going to be the largest battery recycling plant in North America when it opens in August. 
So certainly it does look like a exciting prospect. Recycling does look like a great way to kill two birds with one stone. But I know there are some real questions about actually how effective it can be. Melissa, just turn to you first on this one. What are your thoughts on the clean energy supply chain? Is it something you're worried about when you look at all these prices kind of going through the roof? I think lithium's up something like more than 400% in the past year. It is clear there is a lot of pressure in the supply chain. There's obviously a lot of pressure in the supply chain for everything right now, and we are seeing inflationary pressures rise generally worldwide, but it does seem like clean energy industries are being particularly affected. How worried does that make you? How big of a threat do you think that is to the transition to lower carbon energy? So I'll say I'm paying attention, but I'm not exceptionally worried. And I'm actually curious here in a minute. I want to hear how worried y'all are about this. I'm really curious how you see it. So when I break it down, when you look at the raw material prices skyrocketing, let's say, you know, doubling, tripling, going up by however however many you have in your scenarios of what could happen in the future compared to what's happening now, I think about the fact that, okay, that is an impact, but it's not what we see when, let's say, the price of natural gas goes up by 4 or 10x, and it's immediately affecting people's heating bills this winter. And the response to that is, you know, very intense, where I see these, if there's a, a high price for the raw components that go into batteries and wind and solar and other technologies, then that's sending a signal for people to invest in the ability to produce it other places and bring the cost down. So, you know, that lack of the immediate effect, like all of a sudden next month, my utility bills have gone up four, five, 10x, that changes things for me. So it's not that I don't pay attention and I don't think it's important. I'm not on red alert. What about y'all though? How do you think about it? Well, I think it's, uh, you know, I agree with you, Melissa. And I think, you know, it's definitely important to keep our eye on, but the price of all commodities is going up, um, especially during COVID with the supply chain shortages. So um, I think it's also important to keep in mind it's relative, right? So the if the cost of renewable energy goes up because of these supply chain shortages, well, what's happening with the alternative technologies, say natural gas? And, and to your point, Melissa, I mean, my goodness, what we're seeing with natural gas prices and the energy crisis um, around the world, I feel actually like in the U.S. we've been somewhat insulated a little bit from from how crazy you know power prices in Europe have gotten, for example, as well as you know there's uh, some some geopolitical instability at the moment that might be adding to the energy crisis in Europe. I think I I'm definitely keeping an eye on it, but I'm wondering if it's part of this larger trend we're seeing, and if in the long run. As those prices go down, you know, Ed, we were talking about this before the show, whether or not natural gas prices may may not return to where they were and what, what the implications are there. So I totally agree with all of that. I think that's absolutely right. And as you say, it's very important when you're thinking about the rising cost in the renewable supply chain to think about what it's competing against. And as you say, natural gas prices absolutely gone through the roof. I do think, though, that it varies from sector to sector. And I do think in some sectors and some commodities, there are real issues there essentially to do with physical supply, to do with the actual volumes that are going to be available. And what we're seeing in price movements is a signal of those potential issues. And I do think just to think about one example, when you think about lithium and its critical role for EVs, if you look at the projections of potential lithium 
demand to put us on a pathway that would be, broadly speaking, Paris compliant. If you think about getting to a, a world of limiting global warming to well below two degrees, that means colossal expansion in EVs, basically, because you have to take a big chunk out of oil demand. And if you get that huge expansion in EVs, that really does put a lot of pressure on lithium supplies in particular. And it's not really clear when you look around the world and you look at where the lithium reserves are, there is a lot of lithium in the world, but it's the mines are not being developed. They are difficult to develop, takes time. We've seen projects for lithium production getting blocked in the United States recently on environmental grounds. As I say, it is not obvious that the world is going to be able to produce enough lithium to meet that greatly increased demand that we'd have from EVs in particular. And what's happening to prices is is a warning sign of that. It's an indicator that's kind of flashing red, and I think rightfully flashing red. So my feeling is it doesn't. it's not uh, always and everywhere a problem, but you do have to look at certain commodities. And in certain commodities, I think it is telling you there's a real problem there. Well, I think we're seeing some of this play out in terms of the investments we've seen in battery cycling, like you flagged earlier, Ed. So this plant in Georgia, which I think is in Covington, I was trying to figure out how close it was to the General Mills facility I used to go to when I worked in industry, <laughs> um, but I, I couldn't quite locate it that closely. But I think they're investing $43 million to renovate that facility. Once operational, if running the numbers, they were saying that it would be able to process 30,000 metric tons of discarded lithium-ion batteries and scrap annually. Sounds like a lot. That's about 70,000 vehicle batteries per year. We have hundreds of millions of vehicles on the roads of the US right now. It's great. It's great. The investment is great to think about how we recycle and how we don't just say, okay, we're done with it. Throw in the landfill. That's not a good solution. But um, it's a start. It's not, it's not a finish. There's a lot further to go. And so we find this balance between producing new raw materials and recycling materials a key point in that, as we all know, is just are we going to have the strong policy signals to say this is where this is going? I think when it comes to personal electric vehicles, the momentum is there. And so there's a clear need for it. So we'll sort it out. I'm curious to see where the balance of recycling and raw materials production is going to be. And I'm curious to see how many bumps we're going to have in the road as we go along. That's really the key for me. Yeah. To that point about how important recycling can be, I was looking earlier at the EU's goals for this. Often, of course, EU leading the way on this kind of policy of decarbonisation. And they set these goals, which I guess are meant to be uh, somewhat ambitious and and get people to stretch themselves, but also are meant to be realistic. What they're saying is that they want 95% of cobalt and nickel and 70% of lithium that is used to be recoverable or to be recovered at the end of the life cycle of the product. So that sounds like quite a lot. But then when they talk about how much recovered recycled material could and should be used in new products. They're saying uh, their goal is only 12% of the cobalt used and 4%, just 4% of the lithium and nickel used should be recycled in that way by 2030. So it does seem like it's going to be quite a while really before recycled material is going to make a very material difference uh, to those supply chains. I think it's a really good point. It shows the pace of change really to me. So it's saying, okay, we're going to recycle this. Well, that means the battery has to have actually gone through life and it's being replaced. And at the same time, we're so quickly expanding the number of these vehicles that are on the road. It's going to take a while. It's a great point before it can catch up. And so what do we do with raw materials in the meantime? This goes back to the, there's the overall balance that we'll have between recycling and new raw stuff eventually. And then there's the path along the way and how bumpy will that be? 
So, Robbie, what do you think about this? How important do you think recycling can be, maybe in the short term, but also in the longer term? Yeah, well, you know, to Melissa's point, we're <laughs> we're early on the adoption curve for for EVs and lots of things with batteries. I mean, we just got done talking about this growth in clean trucks, presumably many of which are gonna are gonna require batteries. So, I I think you know, Ed, to your point on on the kind of indicators and and we've heard a lot, you know, over the past couple of years about the projected need for lithium and and potential supply shortages. Um, so I do think that recycling, particularly as the number of, of EVs grows, is going to be important. And I know there's also some other interesting approaches. There's some companies that are looking at, you know, taking those used uh, batteries and using them for grid balancing. I'm kind of curious to see how that uh, field develops as well. Um, which is, you know, a little different than uh, it's more reuse than recycling necessarily. Yeah, I, I definitely think this is going to be important to figure out as we kind of reconfigure our our economy around clean energy. Yeah, I agree. Reuse, I think, is a really interesting idea, actually. And just given the difficulty of breaking down an EV, getting the battery out, processing that in ways to extract usable lithium and other metals, as you say, to the extent to which reuse is possible instead of recycling, that definitely I think is going to look like a more attractive option. Yeah, it's making me think, I mean, there's a, there's so many different things, not just around second life for batteries, but second life for solar panels. Wind turbines, I know that's a discussion. Um, you know, how much can we recycle? We end up with those blades is the hardest point to actually do anything with. Um, so how do we figure that out? It's it's going to be an interesting and important part of the equation. I'm having flashbacks to actually the late 90s where all these used golf cart batteries were being picked up by a bunch of my engineering friends in the Southeast and being built into home energy storage networks. I'm sure weren't the safest things we could have ever been doing. It was interesting. But the idea was these batteries, the golf cart, you know, golf courses, they were having to pay to have the batteries disposed of because this wasn't your everyday garbage. Instead, they could give it away for free to someone who could go reuse it. person who was getting it for free, it was an electrical engineer, said, this is a great place where I can innovate and create something useful for my house. And when the, the power goes down in the next hurricane, I've got my lights on. In my, like, that's pretty great. Um, so I wonder how much of that we're going to see. It's good memories. Fantastic idea. That's very smart. I'm very impressed by that story. <laughs> That's, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's really using ingenuity to spot an opportunity there, isn't it? That's great. So we're going to have to wrap up pretty soon. But before we go, we always do our free electrons and keen to get from you stories that perhaps are a bit quirky, maybe offbeat. But anyway, some story that is personal to you, something that struck you about the world of clean energy recently. Robbie, what's yours? Yeah, well, you know, my wife and I are in the market for a hopefully at least a plug-in hybrid uh, SUV. Uh, thinking about our future, and we've been looking for different models, and just totally struck by how few options there are. But also, I mean, speaking of supply chain shortages, the chip supply shortage is just incredible. There's hardly any, even even manufacturers who make these cars. There's just hardly any on the lots, and. You know, as someone who sits behind a computer and models things and analyzes legislation, I think it's a good reminder when I have to go out into the real world and buy these things and look for these things of there's more going on than just, uh, you know, what's in a computer model or behind a screen. So I was just blown away. Um, felt like I was looking for like a PlayStation or something, trying to find one of these cars. And and so it's been really eye-opening. And so what's, have you actually managed to buy anything yet or what's happened? We haven't. We've, uh, you know, we can't even find ones to test drive. I mean, that's that's where we're at in terms of, you know, admittedly, we have it down to a few, a few options that we're interested in. And fortunately, we're not in a rush, but it's really... Uh, 
it's really incredible. I mean, the dealer websites actually show you cars that are in transit to their lots because they want customers to know, okay, this is coming eventually, um, even if they don't have it on on the property. So um, I don't know, it just really drove home just how bad the the microchip shortage is. Um, and just before we we got on the podcast too, there was a Washington Post article about how bad it is and that uh, a lot of auto manufacturers only have a few days supply and that any further disruption could lead to furloughs or or um, shutting down some of the factories temporarily. So um, just really brought home something that that I've seen discussed and has come up in conversations, but hasn't haven't personally affected me yet. Yeah, it really does. All those sort of ramifications from the pandemic spreading out in ways a lot of times that I think people would not have expected at all, just telling you something about the complexity of supply chains and the global economy and the way so many different things are interconnected. I thought it was just Bitcoin miners who were being affected, but uh, clearly <laughs> I'm I'm very wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll have to uh, you'll have to come back on soon and tell us how you get on, and we'll uh, keep our fingers crossed for you. You're able to buy something. So, uh, Melissa, what's yours? All right, Robbie, I will see your electric vehicle and raise you an electric Winnebago. <laughs> so, uh, this is something I've been reading through. Y'all know I spent. Uh, you know, with my family, a lot of this pandemic traveling around the country in our travel trailer pulled behind our diesel vehicle because we haven't been able to find an EV that could pull us very far. And the idea of only being able to travel 60 or 100 miles in a day, we travel five times that in a day, six times that in a day. So I learned something new from the electric Winnebago announcements that have been coming out. One, that only a third of owners who drive RVs drive them for more than 300 miles at a time. We are the, I guess we're part of the other, we're part of that third. We're part of the minority <laughs> in my family because we drive longer and stay longer in individual places. But it really is an interesting argument for electrification of that piece of kind of the more recreational part of our lives. And for some people, admittedly, this is actually how they do their careers. They live in trailers, they live in RVs that they pull around with them in order to save on rent, not need deposits, all of this. I know so many of the RV parks we stay at are actually full of people who are there for months at a time, not long weekends like we are, or a week at a time. So um, the electric Winnebago, it's pretty neat. Now, they're saying it'll probably only get 125 miles to the charge. But I mean, that's where we are today. Where are we going to be in a couple of years? Like, I want to find out. Also, I'll say like the charging infrastructure that's at each of these RV parks we go to is perfect for charging these kind of vehicles. And we talked about this in an episode of The Big Switch we did last year, talking about decarbonizing cars. We followed this guy, Tim Truer, on this cross-country road trip where he ended up in Alaska and had like speed across the Yukon and find places to charge his EV. Um, so yeah, electric Winnebago's. And I'm going to steal a second one, though, because I'm in Texas and my second free electron is actually about carbon-free beef. Have you guys been following this at all? I see looks of confusion. No, no. Right now. I'm, well, I mean, I know, okay, <laughs> just, just to make room. clear, I'm, I'm not uh, kind of completely ignorant. So, no, no, I'm well aware, right? Beef beef is a colossal problem in terms of its, uh, sure, its sure. greenhouse gas, gas emissions. I know well, that. Well, in November, the US Department of Agriculture approved a program that actually is going to open up a path to beef producers to say, hey, my meat is low carbon, and that presumably will provide an incentive to actually reduce the emissions. Um, and I'll say one of my former classmates, Dr. Colin Beal, is a former rancher, and he's actually founder of this group called Low Carbon Beef. So if you want to learn more about it, it's it's interesting, and it's, it's fun to see, because I know he's been working on these topics for so long, and it's great to see this U.S. Department of Agriculture, you know, announcement come out and all the things with it. So that's my second one. That is very interesting. Is that about different diets? I know there's things like feed additives that, that people can use and different treatment of waste and so on. 
there, there is actually an enormous amount you can do, isn't there? Although I still think the emissions from beef are so high, aren't they? If you compare it to, well, I mean, obviously, if you compare it, compare it to uh, eating vegetarian, but even if you compare it, I think, to chicken, it's still kind of way, way up there. Sure, but here's the deal, like across, and I don't, I don't actually focus on that one so much about beef in particular, but it's the idea of not all natural gas delivered to your house is created equal. Not all beef that you're eating or chicken that you're eating for that matter is created equal. So to have an actual system where it's measured and someone can be rewarded for reducing the emissions by me as someone who cares about it, being able to go to the grocery store and I'm looking at I don't know, six types of beef, 10 types of chicken, <laughs> you know, how many types of fish? And I can actually say, you know what? I care about it being low carbon. I now have the ability to make an informed choice. That's pretty great. We could have an entire discussion about diets, which I don't want to open up. But for me, it's exciting. <laughs> I know because it's a, it's a deep rabbit hole we could go down. But to me, it's exciting just that we will have the ability to make choices and manufacturers and producers of all the things that we eat and all the things we use in our daily lives could have a stronger signal that incentivizes them to actually reduce emissions. These things will increase the momentum to net zero. I'm not saying eat a burger every day, Ed. I'm not saying it. <laughs> I'm just saying <laughs> it's cool to follow. Fair enough. Fair enough. So look, my free electron is something, <laughs> I'm, as you say, we could go on all day about this one. We should we stop could, here. We could. And I want to change the subject to something which is a bit of an obsession of mine, which is the question of supposed environmentalists, environmental campaigners, people who are kind of aware and conscious of the environment, standing in the way of investments and changes that would help address climate change. The specific thing which I've been following is the question of the Burning Man Festival. You're both, I'm sure, aware of, you know, about Burning Man, right? New Age Festival in the desert. They build a big man, they burn it. It uh, happens in Nevada. It's a, I've never been. I know quite a few people who have been. They say it's great. I'm sure it's fantastic. And um, and I know also I've have kind of friends who've kind of dreamed about going, and hopefully one day they do, and that's great for them. Very happy. So there is this festival out of the desert in Nevada. It's quite new agey, as you might expect. For that reason, it has you know, they're quite aware of their environmental impact, sustainability issues raised by the festival. They put out a statement in uh, 2019, which is all about their environmental sustainability and you know what they could do in terms of various issues, including their carbon footprint. And they talked in favour of you know, we're backing renewable energy. I think they have an objective to be entirely um, use only carbon-free energy by 2030. They're pro wind, solar, geothermal, etc. Then last year, a company called Ormet Technologies comes up with a proposal for geothermal power plant, exploring for a geothermal power plant, reasonably close to the Burning Man site. It's near the town of Golak, which is one of the nearest towns to where Burning Man happens. And of course, guess what the Burning Man project's response is? Is it to say, fantastic, this is marvellous. Great that you're investing in low carbon energy near us. We back you 100%. No, they said, we have concerns about this. We're worried about light pollution. We're worried about groundwater pollution. We're worried about impact on this pristine bit of the Nevada desert. 
we think this is not necessarily a bad idea, but they called for a big environmental impact uh, statement to be done. They said that people who attended Burning Man should get on the website where they can comment on the project and so on, and generally sort of raise concerns about it and clearly have the effect of slowing the project down. To me, I, I think there's a real problem there. And, I, you know, yes, just because we're in favor of renewable energy development in general doesn't mean you have to be in favor of renewable energy development everywhere. But on the other hand, if you say you're in favor of renewable energy and any time anyone actually proposes a renewable energy development that happens to create some kind of problem for you in any way, you oppose it, I think that raises some very legitimate questions about how serious you are in your commitment whether you're really thinking about living your principles and whether you really are as concerned about the environment and the climate as you claim to be. And I think, I mean, Melissa, I think you and I have disagreed about this one in the past. And I can see you shaking your head right now. So maybe you disagree with me about this one. But I still think my general position is climate change is, is, it's not wrong to say it's the defining issue, certainly the defining environmental issue of our age. And we have to be prepared to do what we can to address it, even if at times that makes us feel uncomfortable or has other costs. And that's something I feel, and it's not the only issue in energy. There's all sorts of other issues about energy access and uh, relieving poverty and so on. So I'm not saying climate change is the only thing that anyone should ever be worried about, but it is important. No, at the beginning of this, I thought I was I was excited. I was like, I'm going to be able to plug in my electric Winnebago at Burning Man. And now we've opened up a great conversation. That would exactly, okay. exactly. You know what I'm going to say though, Ed? Right? Which is yeah, which you think they should want oh, to do, right? I mean, I would want to do it because the electric Winnebago looks cool, and uh, I'd want to be able to plug it in. What I'll say is, you know, you know what I'm going to say, Ed? Which is. We've got to think about the trade-offs and figure out where we're willing to accept trade-offs. And what are the biggest things that we aren't willing to compromise on? From a health perspective and a sustainability perspective, climate change is pretty inignorable. But there's other things that are important too. So we got to accept the balance, you know, and realize that there are trade-offs in every single thing that we do full stop. It's about whether or not we're okay with those trade-offs. But oh man, challenge accepted. That was a can of worms, but I'm going to stop. I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole. I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> no, uh, uh, agreed, agreed, agreed. And as you say, no, I'm not disagreeing there are trade-offs. As I say, I'm not trying to suggest that climate change is the only thing that matters. And I'm perfectly prepared to accept <laughs> that if I'd ever been to Burning Man myself, I would see this all very differently. But- I do think it's a general problem. I have a feeling that door might be closed now, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's a, that's the trade-off. That's the trade-off. Okay, I'm not going to try and take the last word on this myself. <laughs> I'll let you have the last word, but I'm going to make one more point, which is to say, yes, there are trade-offs, but you know what? Pretty well any investment anyone wants to make anywhere, there's always a reason to object to it. There's always trade-offs. There's always trade-offs, yeah. There's always trade-offs. And you should, I think, be tilting that balance on those trade-offs to think, what is the thing that we really need to worry about? And that thing we really need to worry about is reducing greenhouse gas emissions. That's what I think. Mm. My last word is, I can't wait for our rain check on this one, because you know we're going to come back to the topic. But I agree with you. There's trade-offs in everything we do. So we got to figure out our priorities and drive towards them. Um, it's been great hanging out with y'all. I've really enjoyed this conversation today. This is good. 
Indeed. Likewise, likewise. Great talking to you. And I'm sure, as you say, we've got to keep talking. Eventually, you'll come around. (laughs) For now, though, we do have to leave it. Um, Thank you very much, Robbie. Thanks, Ed. Had a lot of fun. Thank you, Melissa. As always, it was a lot of fun. I'm glad you could join us today, Robbie. Enjoyed the conversation, Ed. And uh, many thanks to all of you for listening. Please do let us know what you think. Give us your comments, suggestions, ideas for subjects we ought to be covering. We're on Twitter at, at the Energy Gang, and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. That's where you can find me. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.